The Google Podcast app is going away in April. Right now, I want you to take a look at the podcast app you're using right now. Maybe it's time for a new one. Check out podcastapps.com and try a new one for free right now. That's podcastapps.com. This is Writing Class Radio, where you'll hear true personal stories from the students in our class and learn a little bit about how to write your own stories. I'm Allison Langer, a student in the class. I'm Andrea Askowitz, the teacher of the class. Together we produce this podcast, which is equal parts heart and art. By heart, we mean the truth in a story. By art, we mean the craft of writing. No matter what's going on in our lives, writing class is where we tell the truth. It's where we work at our shit and figure out who we are. There's no place in the world like writing class, and we want to bring you in. Well, today on our show, we're talking about objects, things like pens and trash cans and reading glasses, and in our longer piece, a scale. Well, they objects, give us a feeling. They do. They, they, not, they bring back memories. They are sentimental. They put us in a good mood or a bad mood. Um, sometimes yeah. I'm in a bad mood and I just want chocolate, which is to me an object. <laughs> um, you or just want to open or, your fridge and look at that little packet of chocolates yeah. you have in there. Or sometimes I'll grab a necklace and it'll remind me of, you know, somebody in my life. So we can build stories around these things because these objects affect our lives. Yes. Okay, so I was in a class with Anne Hood. She's a writer. And she taught me this concept, object correlative. And I was like, what? Object correlative. Okay, so she said the object correlative is an object that stands in for an emotion. And again, I was like, what? Yeah. But I've been thinking about it a lot and a, for a long time. And I did some research recently to try to like figure out how to explain it. And um, this is what I found. T.S. Eliot said... The object correlative is a set of objects, a situation, a chain of events, which shall be the formula of that particular emotion, such that when the external facts, which must oh God, terminate. Please, please, please. Wait, wait, I, I got it. I almost, I almost got it. Okay. When the external facts, which must terminate in sensory experience, are given, the emotion is immediately evoked. Okay. English, please. <laughs> okay. So basically, it means... We can use an object in storytelling to stand in for an emotion. And we're going to hear it. We're going to, people did it really well um, in our class and on this episode. So maybe let's just go, you did it really, really well. So let's just go straight to your story, your story about your reading glasses. Up now is Allison Langer with her story. This was a prompt response in class. So this is a very beginning first draft, but it very, instructively shows us how to use an object as an object correlative to stand in for an emotion. I am officially fucked without my reading glasses. I can't see time on my watch, the words on my screen, or the questions on my children's homework. They say it's to be expected at 50, but if gray hair and saggy skin isn't humiliating enough, having to slip on glasses to read the menu on a first date is. <laughs> I've tried to hold the menu at a distance, but in dim light, making out letters is impossible. I often tell the guy to just order for me, that I like everything, but I don't, <laughs> but I don't like everything. I don't like pork or red meat or olives or eggs. I'm not that into cream sauces or wine sauces, and fried food is a definite no. <laughs> Yesterday, I ordered my third three-pack from Target. 
holding steady at strength 1.25, but I've got a pair of glasses in my car, office, TV room, nightstand, bathroom, and purse, and still I'm often holding a book or a magazine in search of my glasses. I hate the inconvenience, the expense, the dependence on a piece of plastic that keeps me relevant in my world. But what I hate most is my age. 50 sucks. If you're 50 or 40 or 30, it sucks. (laughs) But not if you're 60 or 70 or my dad's age, 81. He tells me he'd love to be 50 again. I wish he were 50 again. That would mean I was 20. Actually, I'm not so sure I'd like to redo 20, but me being 20 would mean I'd have another 30-some years with my dad. So this this story was a perfect example of the use of the object correlative, but um, what we do in class is we say, what do you want to know more about what um, drew us in? And um, I would like to know more about what I see coming in this story, which is this fear of loss. And so the narrator, so you, you mentioned your dad at the very end of this prompt response. And so now I want to know, now I think that what you could do is take this further and talk about or explore what aging means in terms of everything that that could be lost or will be lost. We're all going to get older. Well, also, it's it it makes me like a lot of times people are complaining about age and people are like, whatever, you know, you know you're going to get old. We all get old and blah, blah, blah. But what happens is, is as the piece continues. And of course, when I was writing this, I didn't think about it because right. we don't. We just right. write, write, write. Good. But um, it makes me more likable if I'm talking about something bigger than my own vanity, like my own you know, worried about beauty or going on a date and having to put on glasses, like big deal. People in this world are really suffering. Yeah. So no one gives two shits about my eyesight or that I'm getting old. But when you start talking about loss, that's something that everyone can understand. And it makes us all feel united. Right. It makes you more likable because it makes you vulnerable in a bigger way. And that's important in a story because otherwise, why do people care? Right. Yeah. All right. Well, up next is Liz Marquardt, and she tells a story that initially you're like, great, you know, she's pissed about something, and you'll see. Right. But we get that it's a much bigger thing. So Liz Marquardt is a student in our class who has told stories on previous episodes. So check back. I think it's episode 36, maybe? I think 37. 37. Okay, so, so it's around there. Look for Liz if you love her story. Every night when my husband Bill gets home from work, no matter what time of the day or night, he has this OCD moment where he gets out of his car and moves the big green plastic garbage bin and the big blue recycle bin away from the corner of the driveway to put it more in the middle. He slides them back and forth and positions them as if there's an exact latitude line on the earth that he must line them up with. I think he looks like a crazy person while he's doing this, and I've told him so. He says that the bins have to be moved over because they're going to shade the plant at the corner of the house and kill it. He's wrong, of course, but I just roll my eyes and will move them back the next day in the morning when I go out to get the newspapers, because otherwise I'll hit them when I back out of the garage. It is such a stupid thing, but I guess it's one of those unresolvable territory disputes you have when you've been married and together for over 20 years. The first thing that annoys me about this whole thing is that it's the only time Bill touches the garbage bins. (laughs) 
Due to his traveling all the time, the task of taking out the garbage, picking up dog poop in the yard, and every other house-related thing has fallen to me since I'm the one who does not travel for my job. It's not that I want to claim some ownership over the stupid bins. It just bothers me that he moves them around for a pointless reason and is so fixated on it that he has to do it every day. First of all, that plant is thriving and is actually going to be as tall as the house, so clearly the bins are not killing it. Secondly, he knows I have shitty depth perception, so I don't need any additional obstacles on my way to get the car out of the garage. I guess I should think about why it annoys me so much. Maybe the garbage bins are annoying me because I think those should be taking out the garbage, since I do everything else in the house and have an equally responsible job. Maybe the bins are annoying me because I'm mad at myself for setting this precedent. Hard to say. Oh my God, so... (laughs) Um, I don't mean to laugh. I mean, obviously this is big. Fuck those garbage bins. Those garbage bins represent everything about a long-term relationship or marriage. They really do. They're like, it's about the frustration, the little things your partner does. It became a story about their division of labor. Yeah. It started off about this like, yeah, this annoying thing. And yeah. I love this narrator. What drew me in was how she she knows herself so well. She knows she's going to back up and hit the garbage bins. It may not be just the garbage bins, but there are tons of other things. Like who's the one who rushes home to meet the roofer or the, gar- you know, anything that's going wrong, the exterminator. Like wh- who does all this? Who thinks about the menu for dinner? All of that. So when the person comes home and they fuck with the trash bin, you're just like, Done. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. Because we don't have any idea what our partners are doing, you know, the emotional labor. So up next is Maya Kiefer, a new student in our class. Maya and I actually teach writing in prison together as facilitators for Exchange for Change. And Maya gave this same prompt to her poetry class in prison. She asked them, write about an object. And here's what she got. I teach poetry in a men's prison south of Miami. It's an intro class where we cover things like object description, sensory detail, and rhythmic devices to try and communicate emotions in as few words as possible. During one of my first classes, I asked the guys in my class to spend 10 minutes writing a description of an object using all five senses, but never naming the object. After, everyone would read their description and the rest of the class would guess what the object was. When ten minutes were up, I called on the guy closest to me to start. He read his piece, describing something that is sometimes black, sometimes blue. As far as he could tell, it smelled like nothing. He told us how he could use it to create whatever he wants. The rest of the group shouted, A pen! When the next guy read, it was eerily similar. I use it as a sword, except when I use it to conjure my loved ones. Also a pen. After the third pen, I realized this may have been a shitty idea for a prompt. I don't think it was the class's fault that they picked the same object. In prison, there's not a lot to own. Some guys have enough money in their commissary account to buy snacks, so one guy described a packet of instant coffee. For the most part, they were limited to a handful of items. I also thought, maybe the pen thing is intentional. Most of these men started writing only after entering a prison education program. And in these programs, there is a lot of rhetoric about the transformative power of pen on paper, what it can do, how it can transport. 
For another class, I started with a free write in the form of a letter. I asked them to write a letter they are afraid of getting, from a family member, a friend, maybe even a victim. But is this poetry? One guy asked. Another man said he didn't want to do the prompt. Had I fucked up again? I thought I should treat the class as any other outside class and force them to do what I say, no matter what. Just kidding. Sort of. I stuck with the prompt and everyone ended up writing once I added the condition that they weren't required to read after. But when it came time to read, everyone did. One guy raised his hand immediately. I'll go, he said. Usually the student's reading comes with a lengthy preamble about how his writing is not very good, he felt rushed, etc., etc. This time he just stared at his page and began. He read a letter from his kid describing how disappointed and ashamed he was that his dad ended up in prison. The piece ended with, I don't love you anymore. My student's voice wavered from the first line, but the rest of the class was silent. Usually the energy in the room is upbeat and the guys tease one another. Like when we practiced object description, the class clown, who I'll call Alex, guessed dildo after the first several readings. This time, there was no teasing, only silence. Wow, I said, after he'd finished reading. Thank you so much for sharing. This prompt never turned into a poem, but it didn't matter. We'd opened a door. Honesty and imagination were allowed into the room. Object description is a useful skill for any writer, but in prison, it just reminded me of how few things they have to choose from. This story is an, a great example of how most people have no idea what one object can mean to another person. The pen in her story is really important to them, which is why probably they all, you know, many of the guys wrote about it. Right. Yes. Um, the story um, for me uh, is about perspective. Yeah. That's what I thought was so compelling and interesting about Maya's rendition of this situation that happened she was showing us perspective oh and when she gets to the part about the letter i was crushed oh my god it makes the pen the object even more emotional so that's why i just oh god that got me before we get to the last story here's a word from our sponsor all right we're back today's episode (laughs) is about objects object correlative Um, which we told you was an object standing in for an emotion in a story. And how we can use objects to write stories. Last up is new student Marjorie Berger. Her story is called The Scale. My scale is always with me. It was with me when I went away to college, when my mother died, when my children were born, and when my marriage ended after 28 years. I spend time with it every morning, every night, before bed, and often at some other point during the day. I've been weighing myself since I was 12. I did the math. That's 48 years times 365 days times 2, which equals 35,040 weigh-ins. That's not counting the additional times I weighed myself when I changed my clothes. 
I've picked up a few other rituals through the years. I sleep with my iPad in case I need to read in the middle of the night. I don't touch doorknobs without covering my hand with my sleeve. I hate using the pen things on credit card processors to sign my name, especially at the pharmacy. Who knows how many people picking up Tamiflu touched it before me. I have hand sanitizer with me at all times to deal with just this type of problem. And the scale, I eat and go on vacations as long as it's with me. At 12, since I didn't have my own scale, I would go into my parents' bathroom, shut the door, and strip down to my underwear. I stepped on the scale first thing in the morning when I got home from tennis and again after dinner. If I weighed 88 instead of 87, I'd exercise more and eat a little less. At sleepaway camp in Maine, I'd head up to the infirmary before breakfast where the scale was on the front porch. One summer, I was 13, I grew almost four inches and lost eight pounds. I went from 92 to 84 pounds. I wasn't fat before then, but I wasn't one of those kids who looked like a noodle with knees either. When I got home from camp, my mother told me how great I looked. I liked my new skinny body. A few years later, boys liked it too. My weighing ritual hasn't changed much through the years, except, of course, I no longer have to sneak into my parents' bathroom to do it. I take off my watch and my clothes, but I leave my underwear on if I'm not going to shower. Sometimes I take out my ponytail rubber band, though I know it doesn't weigh anything. I pee, even if I don't have to, because I might weigh less after peeing. When I was pregnant, the nurse at the obstetrician's office wasn't surprised when I took off my jewelry and whatever else I could. She said, all the skinny ones do that. Twenty years ago, we took the kids on a 10-day ski trip to Vail, a long time to be away from my scale. I found a travel scale at Bed Bath & Beyond. I justified the purchase because I thought I'd enjoy what I ate more if I knew how much I weighed. Unfortunately, the scale beeped every time I stepped on it, broadcasting my not-so-secret weigh-ins to my family through the closed bathroom door. Immediately afterwards, I would put it back in my suitcase, out of sight, not wanting to impart my bad habit to my 11-year-old daughter. I didn't want to give her the message that being thin is the only way to be. I've since found a better, quieter travel scale, a sleek-looking, non-beeping digital one. It has a protective sleeve and fits neatly in my carry-on. That matters to me. I'm a good packer, the type that reads articles on the virtues of folding or rolling clothes, and I have those container store inserts to keep my suitcase in perfect order. That's off the scale topic, or is it? People with eating disorders have control issues. My travel scale comes with me whether I'm going for a few days or a few weeks. I always feel anxious as it goes through the screening machines. On the few occasions when my bag has been flagged, the TSA person finds my travel scale, takes it out of its case, rubs that thing over it that checks for dangerous chemicals, and asks, what's this? It's a scale, I say, and feel my face heat up. I want to think of an excuse, like it's a gift for the friend I'm visiting or I need it for medical reasons. The scrutiny and embarrassment are worth it to me. I'll know how much I weigh. I keep a backup 9-volt battery in my toiletry case. There's always a possibility that the travel scale battery will go dead. 
It would be difficult to find a 9-volt battery in the middle of Vietnam and even harder to explain why I need it. In 1992, I inherited the best bathroom scale ever from my father-in-law, the medical kind, and it looks so good in our black and white tile bathroom. When it broke about a year ago, I ponied up $488 for a worthy replacement because I couldn't trust a lowly $20 digital scale, no matter how good the online reviews were. How did this obsession with the scale begin? Was it creepy cousin Ira's comment when I was eight? You have such a pretty face, but you'd look better if you were skinnier. Or was it images of Twiggy, the model, or the skinny Mary Tyler Moore, or the gorgeous but eating disordered Audrey Hepburn? Or was it my stepfather telling me I had a Jewish figure, code for not skinny? Or is this compulsion to weigh myself hardwired into my brain, like OCD? Maybe all of the above. I remember how much I weighed for each of the major events in my life. When I got married at 5'5 and 116 pounds, I was thin. And when I got pregnant with both of my kids, I gained exactly 25 pounds each time and lost the weight within two weeks of giving birth. Both times. In 1986, I exercised to Jane Fonda's video while my one-week-old daughter napped in her bassinet. The most I ever weighed non-pregnant was my senior year of college. After a winter blizzard and lots of Entenmann's cookies, I ballooned up to 128 pounds. When I got home from college that spring, my mother said, you got chunky. My future husband, now ex-husband, used to remind me regularly that he remembered the noise my corduroy pants made as my thighs rubbed together during that heftier time. For years, he said, you look much better thinner, and I wasn't attracted to you then. Now I leave food on my plate. Many of my friends watch what I don't eat. Some say to the others at the table, she doesn't eat, or say to me, I wish I could be like you and have willpower. I explain, I'm a grazer. I had a banana before I came, or I ate a bunch of mint chocolate malted milk balls from Fresh Market. They're my favorite. Again, the scrutiny, while uncomfortable, is worth it. Running helps. I can weigh myself before a run, then again after, and be a pound and a half less. The morning my marriage blew up, I went for a run. I had trouble catching my breath, but I ran. I told myself it was therapeutic, but I ran that day, like I do on lots of other days, so I can see the number on the scale drop. I weighed 112 that day. I stayed at 111 for the next six years. Now I weigh less. This morning, 107 pounds. I can't control my wrinkles or my age spots or my kids or my ex, but I can control my weight. It's so honest. I mean, I feel like I really know this narrator. I want to talk about the writing, first of all. She didn't really apologize. She didn't couch. She just, she said it like it is. So the object correlative is the scale. And it. I see that it stands in for control. This narrator does everything to stay in control. As long as she has the scale, she can be in control. Without the scale, she's not in control. Right. So the scale equals control. Yeah. What I was so um, impressed by 
in the writing were the details. She gives us the exact, her exact weight yeah. at different points in her life. Yeah, she doesn't just say, I was different weights at different points in my life. She gives us these details, so we trust her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And she, another thing that she did really, really well, which I love when a narrator does this in a story, is she looks inward. She asks herself, why? Why am I like this? Where did this compulsion start? Yeah. And I just, uh, it's such a complete exploration. I, I, I'm impressed. She's good. When her friends say, I wish I could be like you, I get it 100%. So that line meant so much to me when she said that, because we are a fucked up women's world. Right, right. Not that there are not men out there who maybe feel like this, but there are a lot of women who feel this way. And it is Mm -hmm. torture. Yes, it is. And it also, like, she doesn't feel worthy without her scale and without this control. And and Well, that's why this piece makes me feel sad. I feel the pain in this piece. I feel like this narrator is not free. What I love about this narrator and about this story is this is no longer a secret. Yeah. She's saying, listen, guys, this this is it. This is me. And this is who I am. And it's not cool. And it is cool. And I need it. And I don't need it. And... I need love anyway. I think she's just telling her truth. Yeah. And she did all of that by writing about an object, her scale. Yeah. Well done. Yeah. Really well done. Uh, All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to our storytellers for sharing your stories. And our fall writing contest is on. Here's the prompt. A time you had an unpopular opinion. It could be big, small, whatever. Write your story, 1,200 words or fewer, and send them to info at writingclassradio.com. The deadline is September 30th, 2018. All the guidelines are on our website. If you have a business or a startup, let Andrea help you tell that story. She'll come to your office and teach all your employees how to better articulate why they do what they do. Because stories sell. And guess what? I'm for hire, too. Let me help your high school rising seniors, even juniors and sophomores, if you want, learn how to write better and refine their college essays. Early decision deadline is November 1st. To get started, email info at Writing Class Radio or check our website for details. Writing Class Radio is produced by Virginia Laura, Andrea Askwitz, and me, Allison Langer. Theme music by Ari Herstand. And additional music by Kai Engel, Gillicuddy, Dave Deppie, and Poddington Bear. Writing Class Radio is sponsored by and recorded at the University of Miami School of Communication. There's more writing class on our website, Twitter, and Facebook. Study the stories we study and listen to our craft talks. A new episode will drop the first Wednesday of every month, so look for us. And if you want inspiration in video form, we have a three-part series for sale on our website. Andrea and I give you our top writing tips. Go to writingclassradio.com and download our videos. $20 for one and just $50 for all three. So you've written an essay or you're almost finished. Now what? Where do you send your story for publication? How do you format that story? Do you need a cover letter? We have the answers in a free publishing guide. To get our guide, all you have to do is join our mailing list. Go to writingclassradio.com and hit the sign up button. Or send an email to info at writingclassradio.com. There's no better way to understand ourselves and each other than by writing and sharing our story. Everyone has a story. What's yours?
It's said that the more time you have to invest, the greater the return. Well, guess what? Kids have the most time if we learn to invest early. That's why I created the Cash Kid Podcast, where I teach kids and some adults financial skills they need to know on how to earn, save, and invest their money. Join me on this journey as we interview experts and explore topics that allow you to grow your money as kids. This podcast will help you become the money expert among your family and friends. Just remember, anyone can be a cash kid. You just have to learn how to become one. Get ready to grow your financial knowledge and your wallet with the Cash Kid Podcast.